0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.
1: Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions except today. Uh, Today, we are not taking questions. And the reason being, I got a lot of information to get out there. So what we're going to do is go to the second option, which is email me. If you have medical questions, go to info at alessimd.com. I'm happy to answer them. And actually, you know, I think we're going to do an upcoming show of just answering questions, uh, since we get so many of those. So we're not going to take live questions today, uh, but feel free to email me with those questions um, as uh, we come up on them. As many of you regular listeners will know, I haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, This past week, uh, I was at Notre Dame again, uh, where I've been uh, made several visits to their boxing program. Uh, They have an undergraduate boxing program. Uh, This is a program just for their undergraduate students. It's a club. Now, you would think that who the heck is doing this? I mean, we've got Dr. Bennett Amalo, the new evangelist of head injury, uh, out there preaching that anybody who participates in a contact sport or has their child participate in a contact sport is accused of child abuse. But nevertheless, this boxing program does tremendous good for their students. Um, there are very few injuries. They wear headgear, um, but they train. They train hard. And really get a lot out of it, especially the young women who do it. Um, They all tell me it's such an empowering experience. So uh, I'm out there making sure that they are keeping it safe um, there. Uh, This week, actually, I'm going to be heading to Haiti uh, to work with Father Rick Frechette. Uh, I missed the visit in December due to extreme amounts of violence in Haiti. So uh, heading down on a short visit this week, but I will be back with you next week. Uh, My guest today is going to be live in the studio is going to be Dr. John Rodas. Dr. Rodas is an obstetrician and gynecologist, uh, but currently serves as and has served as the president of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center since 2015. We're going to talk about an interesting topic that comes up a lot in the medical world, and that is Safety in the hospital and hospital safety programs, what makes one hospital safer than another? So we're going to be chatting with him about that. This day in medicine, February 1st, Uh, two topics germane to our guest today. The first is today is the Feast of St. Bridget, who lived in 453 to 525. She was from Ireland, and she practiced medicine and midwifery, but she persuaded the rulers in ireland to banish quacks something we're still trying to do is find out who are the quacks okay and who shouldn't be touching people so very interesting since we're going to be talking about patient safety that goes back to the year 453 also today uh, february 1 1716 john bard was born he was an american physician and surgeon he did in 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 1759, he did the first successful operation for an ectopic pregnancy. He also became the first president of the New York State Medical Society. Many of you are hearing about the coronavirus. Well, let's get on it. The World Health Organization has declared this a global emergency. The United States has called it a, a national public health emergency. How did we get here? I mean... There are 259 people in China dead and 11,800 people deceased in 24 countries, uh, diseased from 24 countries, not deceased, diseased from 24 countries, 11,800 people. How did it get here? Well, it's transmitted by animals. So someone in China was selling animals in a market illegally that were obviously infected and transmitted this virus the problem came up when china hit it they hid the problem this this really started in december when healthcare workers started getting it from other patients but had we gotten on it it would never have gotten this far and it's going to affect all of us you know medicine is global we may want to build walls we may want to be isolationists but medicine is global and it's going to affect us now. It's affecting us now because we have people on two-week quarantines. They're not going to work, right? And it's, going to, it's affecting China so bad, you're going to see the stock market has already started going down. That's our money. So it really affects everybody. And so it's important for countries to take a responsible action and report these things so that we could all work on a cure and fix this problem. I try to stay away from politics on this show because, let's face it, there's a steady diet of it here at WTIC, um, and it's become kind of a plague. But the President of the United States has now entered my world, and he stepped out of his lane. And that is, I'm talking about 64 military war fighters who suffered a variety of brain injuries as a result of the Iranian bombing of Iraq. Our president proceeded to minimize these symptoms and call them just a headache. Traumatic brain injury from a blast is not just a headache. And the reason I take this so personally is because those are my patients. I treat athletes. I treat others who have these head injuries. They suffer memory loss, vertigo, depression, cognition. They have trouble processing information. These are severe the veterans of foreign wars have asked for an apology from the president they won't receive it i guarantee you that but by the by the same token we have an opportunity here because not all the president has done two things one he's exa- he's given us an example of his ignorance of the topic of traumatic brain injury and the second thing he's given us an opportunity for education so people become more aware of this you know traumatic brain injury isn't one of those things where you lost a limb you've got a crutch, you're wearing a brace, but it's something you wake up and have to deal with every day and your family has to deal with that every day. So let's rely on the experts when it comes to this and how it's approached and never minimize the symptoms of traumatic brain injury. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. John Rodas. We're going to be talking about patient safety. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk
0: 1080. That is the
1: music coming from a recording made at St. Damien Hospital and the chapel there where I will be going tomorrow. Um, and hearing some of the beautiful singing there uh, in Haiti. And uh, just, just a great place um, uh, to be around the folks there and the hardworking people at um, their hospital. Uh, my guest in this segment is Dr. John Rodas. Dr. Jodas is an obst- obstetrician and gynecologist um, who was in practice many years. In 2015, he was named president of St. Francis Hospital, He's also well-known as a teacher. One of the things he doesn't know is that I heard from a mutual friend of ours, Dave Calla, that you were probably the best teacher he had at the University of Connecticut, which makes me feel old because I think he's thinking of retirement now. So uh, I don't know what we're doing, John. But anyhow, um, Dave Calla told me that once. He said, you know,
0: this guy is he says, he says
1: the best teacher I ever had. John, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, good morning, Tony. Thank you very much. That's quite a compliment.
1: Um... Let's talk a little bit about you. How, how did you get here? I mean, you, you, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Tell us a little bit about yourself, because it's it's an interesting evolution of going from being a doc, a practicing doc, uh, to running a big institution.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I have the uh, average career path. I'm a son of Greek immigrants. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and uh, you know, kind of worked in a diner every summer and Christmas of my life. And... Um, after I went to Cornell undergraduate and uh, I think my father really deserves credit for nudging me towards healthcare I was kind of a math kind of guy I thought maybe engineering and um, I became a biology major in college and then uh, before I knew it I was in medical school I couldn't get into medical school in America I ended up going to school in Mexico I didn't know that uh, I, yeah, I'm some farm medical graduate and um started my residency in Oba New Jersey. And really just, you know, life's funny. It, it's just uh, circumstances. My chief resident came to Connecticut to do a fellowship at High Risk OB. Um, I kind of followed him up here. And next thing I know, I was spending 17 years at UConn, working my way up the academic ladder. And then I got recruited down to Stanford Hospital as chair of the department, which was a big opportunity for me. And then two years after I got there, they asked me to become a chief medical officer, which really, I would say, was the big career change. That's that's more of an administrative job sure. you know you're still a doctor but you're also an administrator kind of liaison between the hospital and the medical staff and then uh you know fortunately i got called to come back to st francis where ironically i started my fellowship in 1985 in uh-huh. high-risk OB. Uh, the yukon program was at st francis hartford and yukon and um, i came back as chairman and two years later became the executive vice president chief operating officer and then two, two years later became the president so it's kind of a crazy uh path but here i am so and somewhere along the way, you got an MBA? Yeah, a few years ago, I graduated from RPI Hartford campus, uh, uh, Rensselaer, and got my MBA, you know, three years ago, actually. Wasn't
1: it fun? I it mean, was I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I went back and got my master's in medical management. Um, and and it, was, it was kind of a fun
2: approach. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm a big fan of continuing education. And I don't mean continuing medical education. Sure. What I think lifelong learning is actually very important. And uh, it was great. And I was in a cohort with, you know, engineers and pilots and you know they weren't all doctors and it was very interesting to get their perspective on on stuff uh
1: how was the transition from being a foreign medical graduate as you may know i went to school at the university of rome i didn't get into an american medical school and yet we've had successful careers a lot of people are afraid of doing that Uh, now do you think it helped you
2: Oh, I, I certainly think so. I think it gives, um, you know, first of all, you got a global perspective. You know, look at what you've done and look at the work you're doing, uh, whether it's in Notre Dame or, or, or Haiti. Um, you realize that, first of all, it's a big world. A lot of people have a lot less than we have. Um, and that you could do a lot with little, with little sometimes. And, 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 and So I learned that in Mexico, truthfully. Uh, You also learn about stuff that you wouldn't learn here, a lot of stuff about infectious disease and uh, just the things we take for granted in America, clean water, sewage, uh, electricity, light. I mean, most people have no clue. Right.
1: I mean, just being able to turn on the faucet to brush your teeth is not something you see in these other um, developing countries. And I know that you and the folks at St. Francis have uh, a hospital in in Haiti that uh, you guys support. And uh, uh, that's really a, a wonderful thing. What was the transition like? I mean, so when you became chief medical officer, um, what was that like?
2: Oh, I'm not going to lie to you, Tony. It was a tough. That's a tough transition. Um, you know, your doctors don't necessarily love chief medical officers because no, you're no, you're, the, you're the nobody one, loves them. You're the one who's holding them accountable, and uh, you know if they're not documenting things, or they're not treating our staff respectfully, or not, or have quality issues or behavioral issues. You know, you're the one that's having those. You know, Dutch uncle conversations. With I know them. it's not. Uh, it's a tough job. I think it's the actually now that have had almost every job in healthcare. I think it's the hardest job in in healthcare.
1: Wow, uh, I would think that. Um, let's talk a little bit about patient safety. So it's kind of an odd term because you assume I'm in a hospital, I'm in a safe place. But you and I both know there are a lot of ver- there are a lot of things going on in a hospital. And I I guess the question we want to get to is, how do you get control of that? In other words, well, how do you define patient safety? Because people hearing this are saying, is it unsafe? And how would you define that for the public?
2: Yeah, I I think – yeah, it seems you're right. It seems intuitive, right? That you should just assume safety. It's you know, and I'll use the analogy of the airline industry, right? In the airline right. industry, we assume the plane is properly serviced, the pilots properly trained, the staff are not just trained to fly the plane but prepared for emergency. The plane has adequate fuel. You just that's a given for us, but. You know, Tony, you and I are both old enough to remember there was a time when planes weren't always so safe. And and there were plane crashes and and the Air Force were losing pilots left and right. And they instituted, um, you know, a very high level quality and systems of safety because they recognized that sometimes a person, a human being, can make an error. And and when everything was dependent on a pilot uh, or co-pilot and pilot didn't communicate safely or maybe the training wasn't appropriate or you weren't prepared for the emergencies, you didn't drill for them. Planes were crashing. And now that's a rare event. Um, and uh, I think healthcare is kind of a little later to come along the line in that regard. We started realizing that people make mistakes. Doctors can make mistakes. Nurses can make mistakes. And so I would say patient safety is, you know, involves a system of care that reduces the opportunity for medical errors. And uh, medical errors can happen.
1: So you bring up the pilot idea. I mean, I guess we've all read the checklist manifesto, right? Yep. And we know that a pilot gets in there. They've got a checklist to go through. Um, astronauts have a checklist to go through. Um, and now physicians have a checklist to go through to some degree. Is that making a difference? Is it? Is it that applicable to medicine? And, and I guess that's my real question. I, I've read it. I know we do it to some degree. But has that made a difference?
2: I think so. I think we've reduced errors significantly from... Um, certainly over the last 100 years, and particularly I would say in the last 20 years. Uh, Checklists are just one thing that I think hospitals have instituted. Uh, You know, you go into an operation. Now, before you walk in the room, you huddle and say, what are we going to do? Make sure we have the right patient. Make sure we're going to do the right surgery, that we're going to do it on the right side. If we're going to take out any specimens, uh, if there's any special needs the patient has, those are all addressed before you walk in the room. And then when you're done, you you huddle again. It's okay. Did we do the right operation on the right patient? Did we take a specimen? Are the specimens labeled properly? Uh, That's just one area where I think there's been significant uh, safety uh, improvements. Anesthesia. Again, when you and I were coming up, anesthesia complications weren't that rare. That that they've really embraced safety. Kind the of like anesthesiologist the anesthesiologist
1: was the guy sleeping at the head of the table. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that, I, they, and I know that's not the case now. No, and they,
2: they really are. I think they've championed actually uh, patient safety so in hospitals. I well. think
1: uh, so as well. So we've talked about it in the OR. Did do these huddles work? I mean, everybody's got a huddle. Okay. We started calling it the morning cuddle. Okay, because I. I does it work on the floors and places like that as well? I could see it in the OR. Has it been yeah, successful? Yeah. I don't know.
2: No, I think there's, you know, if you think about all of the opportunities for error in, in, a, in, a, in a single hospitalization over four days, think of all the medications you receive, all the opportunities to get out of bed and hurt yourself, or yeah. for you to develop an infection, to get a pressure ulcer. You know, it's, it's, you really need a system of care to reduce all those things from happening.
1: You know what drives me crazy? I'll tell you what, on rounds, when I'd go on rounds... They refer to all the patients by their bed number because of HIPAA. Now, I used to work in a prison. And in the prison, they told us, never call anybody by their name. You have to reduce them to a number. So I would insist that we use the patient's name, but everybody's afraid to do it. Is it is it because of HIPAA that we use bed numbers 326 bed 2? What crime did he commit? I don't know. Is that is that why we do it?
2: Yeah, I, you know, you raise an interesting point. I I, I do think – I mean, I'm all about patient privacy, and it's important. And I think that – Have the, we gone overboard? The laws, well, maybe, but, you know, patient privacy is important. I mean, you know, you don't, if I'm in the hospital, I don't really want people outside my room saying, oh, here's yeah, Dr. Rhodes, sure. he's in here for, you know, a gallbladder sure. operation." So I, I think that's okay. I, I think, though, the nurses – what we do now is our nurses do handoffs. Yeah. Uh, so if you're coming in the – morning, if they're coming in the morning and you've been there, let's say, overnight as a patient – the nurses coming off the shift, the nurses coming on the shift, do rounds at the bedside. So in front of you, so they're they're using your name. They're not That's saying this right. is 326. They're That's saying this is I Tony like Lessie. To He's here for whatever. Right. This is what we're Sometimes doing. Sometimes
1: they never go in the room. Uh, That's a good yeah, thing. So you got to get them to the best. I think
2: time. handoff communication is one of the things our nurses really have championed, and they've done a great job at that. And patients love it because sometimes patients wait a minute, I didn't know I was having a CAT scan today, or I didn't know I was going home today. Absolutely. And it really enhances the communication.
1: That's great. And it's all about communication. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. John Rodas. We're going to be talking about credentialing. How do you know that the person operating on you is the best? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and my guest today is Dr. John Rodas. Dr. Rodas is the president of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. You know, at the beginning of the show, we talked a little bit about today being the Feast of St. Bridget of Ireland and patient safety. And uh, she was a midwife. John, you had an interesting story, though, about, well, I guess about St. Bridget.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, Tony, 100 years ago, women actually... uh had a fairly high incidence of porpural sepsis, in other words, an infection following childbirth, and would die. Yeah. And um, and people couldn't figure it out why were they why were they dying just having a child. And um, someone made the observation that the midwives' patients weren't dying, but when the doctors delivered the baby, the mothers were had a much higher incidence of infection. And the ob- the difference was the doctors would do autopsies and anatomy classes, and then come in and deliver the baby without washing their hands, where the midwives, for whatever reason, always washed their hands in between patients. And that observation led to the whole concept of hand hygiene, which now we all take for granted in America. But it was just 100 years ago. That wasn't even, that wasn't the norm.
1: Wow, I I never knew that. Uh, So, John, we wanted to talk a little bit about credentialing. And I guess, you know, a lot of people have listened to the podcast, Dr. Death, right? Uh, Which is, the background is uh, Dr. Christopher Dench was, a neurosurgeon uh, in Texas who was a disaster. He um, left 33 people either dead or severely injured. He did not have the qualifications or the experience to practice in a hospital, yet he practiced at Baylor, Plano. And when he had bad results, rather than alert people to uh, his inability to operate – they just pushed him along to another hospital and another hospital. And people were afraid, I guess, of lawsuits or whatever. But, you know, this is a modern day nightmare. And how do we how do we get around that? How do So how does someone please explain to our listeners what the credentialing process is at St. Francis and the institutions where you've worked?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, Tony, it is scary when you hear those stories. And um, so I'll I'll give you the general, you know, gist of how it works. but And more importantly, how do you prevent something like this from happening? Um, You know, first of all, people apply to the medical staff, of course. Uh, We... Look at their entire application. They have to submit letters of recommendation from other folks. We, we validate that they've gone to medical school, that they've done a residency, that they've done a fellowship. We do what's called primary source verification. So we contact those people directly to make sure that the training is, is, is advertised. We obviously confirm their license and their board certification. And we actually perform structured interviews. So our chairmen, you know, meet and chairwomen meet with uh, candidates for a medical staff application and, and talk to them directly to kind of do a face-to-face and, and say, hey, I see you had a malpractice case once a few years ago. Talk about it. And, you know, we don't judge people because they've been sued because, unfortunately, you know, litigation is fairly common in our country. But what you want to know is how did they handle it? What did they learn from the experience? I'm not saying they did something wrong or not. And are they better as a result of it? How did they come out of it? That's just one thing. But then once they're on board, I think this is where the important thing is. You have to continue to observe and get feedback in real time of what's going on. So you really need, again, that system of care of your anesthesiologist, your emergency department physicians, your pathologists all telling you, hey, you know, by the way, the doctor, I said he, had, he had a couple of bad outcomes. Uh, uh, you have a peer review system where you can identify the issues. And you have to do ongoing professional performance evaluations. All the hospitals across the country really do that. But I will would, would admit there's a variable – uh, a lot of variability in how that's being done, and then you have to have, you know, you have to be fair and firm. You have to be able to pull. This is what chief medical officers do. Right. You know, every once in a while, say, "Hey, Doctor Jones, I noticed you had a couple of, of bad outcomes. You know, what's going on? Some of those might have been preventable. Well, let's talk about them." and 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 every once in a while, you have to limit somebody's credentials and say you just can't do that operation anymore. Or maybe, you know, this hospital is not the right hospital for you. Now, you have to be careful with that last one because then they, as you said, they can move on. So I've done it. I've had doctors leave the staff, and I've had to file a report with the National Practitioner Data Bank, which was developed, you know, a couple decades ago specifically for this reason because doctors could go from hospital to hospital to hospital, and there would be nothing on the file. Sure. So two things, I think, when when – You know, for a guy like me or uh, a chief medical officer, you have to really talk to the hospital. When someone leaves a hospital, someone should talk to someone at that hospital. But nobody does that anymore. Well, I don't know about nobody. I do that. I I, know. know, I'll I'll pick up the phone myself and and talk to the president or chief medical and say, hey, this doctor just – because it's a little funny for doctors to shift hospitals, to be honest with you. and you got to ask yourself why. There's got to be a good reason. If you have any index of suspicion, you should call and verify yourself. Um, I'm always shocked that – People don't do that more often to I know be with you.
1: no so uh, this fellow is now in prison for life I mean they actually gave him life imprisonment because they're afraid he'll come out and just go to another country and, and do this uh, kind of stuff is it a fear of being sued by the doctor that that prompts that? Do you think that was a motivation in this situation and in others is that if you deny privileges they're gonna go to court
2: I think that is a legitimate fear. I'm actually have had that experience where the hospital and, and I was named in, in the suit from a doctor who was no longer on the staff at another hospital I worked at. So been there, but I think you can't be afraid. I think you have to do the right thing because right. I really feel the public honestly depends on us to weed out folks that may not be so good. Right. Because how would they know? So I think it's a kind of a moral ethical obligation to be to be frank. But that's one area. I think sometimes and I hate to say it. Sometimes it's economic. So-called economic credentialing, which used to be a thing. So, if you're a high-volume physician and you bring a lot of money to the hospital, I'll admit it. There's been there's over the years I've seen reluctance to to take negative actions against someone.
1: Yep, yep. I think we've all seen that. So, how does how does the how does a hospital get graded on safety? How does somebody know they're going to a safe hospital, John?
2: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I wish there were more transparency about about grading of hospitals or rating them. Uh, you know, I, uh, We were talking during the break and I, I said, you know, people do more research and are able to do more research easily when they buy a, a flat screen TV or a car or, or an iron, for that matter, or a vacuum cleaner. You can go to Consumer Reports, you can Google it, find out the top 10 of those, um, and, uh, and you, you can go to Best Buy and line up three or four TVs in a row before you pick one sure. and, and you decide the value, uh, which makes the value equation for you. But healthcare is really very, it's far more opaque 20 years ago, uh, as you recall, the Institute of Medicine published a paper called To Air Is Human, um, and they, they described that they thought there were 100,000 preventable deaths in hospitals across the country every year. And that kind of shook people up. And uh, what happened as a result of that, the Fortune 100 companies and the Business Roundtable put together a, a company called LeapFrog, which is um, a not for profit entity, which actually rates hospitals on numerous issues like infections, complications after surgery, uh, medication, uh, I mean, doctor and nurse communication, uh, any preventable errors, and also that there's a system of care to, for safety, uh, intensive care, staff, et cetera, et cetera, electronic medical records. And they actually they rate hospitals, and they do it every six months. They've been doing this now for, for you know a couple, 20 years now. They rate hospitals, and they give it a grade, like a letter grade you'd get in school from A through F. And, uh, you know, we're incredibly proud of our track record. Um, you know, people can look at this uh, leapfroggroup.org and you could kind of see how your hospital's rated. And, you know, people question the rating system saying, oh, it's it's variable. And I've seen, especially in smaller hospitals, you know, you can go from an A to a C and a C to an A. But if you go to their website, you can actually look out back over the last three or four years of grades for hospitals. And, you know, we've had in the last three years, five A's and one B. And I'm, I'm incredibly proud of St. Francis for that. And you know, there's plenty of hospitals that have straight C's in that three-year period of time. And you have to kind of question that.
1: What is the press gainey thing about? I mean, I'm I'm always hearing about it. I guess I've never been in that situation where you get press gainy. But people are always talking about their Press gainy ratings or things like that. Can you explain what that is?
2: Well, you're a healthy guy that you don't know that you don't have that experience. So if you're a hospital, yeah, okay, you're, you know, you're, listen, you're, you're, old, but you're right, healthy. I don't have to get re-credentialed. Okay, I
1: don't, I, I have to get re-credentialed, yeah. but I don't have to get reboarded every ten years. It's what happens? The advantage of being an old guy.
2: So, so if you're if you're ever hospitalized, and uh, most hospitals in the country, uh, if you're hospitalized after your discharge, you get a survey in the mail that asks what your experience was like. Press Gain is one of the larger uh, uh, companies that does this uh, function. And uh, it's often a written survey. Uh, It could be electronic. It could be be even a phone survey. Most people do it by mail. And um, we really pay attention to those survey results we get back. And uh, because I've always told people, if you know, people call me all the time and tell me about wonderful experiences they have at my hospital, sure. and I'm, pretty, I'm really proud of that. But I always say to them, is there anything I could have done better, that we could have done better? Because how are you going to improve if you don't hear where Correct. the opportunities for improvement are? And um, we're, I would say, five, six years ago, you know, St. Francis was kind of in the middle of the pack in, in, the, in the state of Connecticut. I've been tracking these numbers for really probably about 20 years now, and Greenwich Hospital to their credit, has led the state literally for 20 years in in the patient experience scores of likelihood to recommend the hospital. And I remember telling our staff, I said, you know, why can't we be like them? And people were like, oh, it's a smaller hospital. It's a nice community. I said, no, oh, that's a very demanding community. I worked on a Fairfield County. Sure. It's just, that's, not, that's not the reason. And uh, we're, I'm incredibly proud to tell you now that we are literally nipping at their heels as the number two hospital in the state of Connecticut on uh, patient experience scores. And uh, it's a lot of work to get there because, uh, you know, there's a lot of encounters people have when they come into a hospital. And everybody has to be on board with giving them a great experience.
1: What do you think it is? Does a lot have to do with the physical plant? Um, you know, when I was at Bacchus Hops, I was there for 29 years uh, when Tom Pipicelli came in and he really modernized the plant. I mean, people loved getting a flat screen TV and a wood simulated floor. Do you think that has a lot to do with it? Or um, is it just the nurses paying more attention or the staff paying more attention to the patient?
2: You know, it's funny you ask that way. I remember someone telling me about Baptist Hospital, which had one great patient experience. And the old old facility had, you know, light bulbs kind of hanging with wires from the ceiling. So that was my early experience, John. You know what? It's not about the okay. environment. Uh, and then when I was in Stanford in Fairfield County, people said, "Oh, of course Greenwich is great because they have a piano in the lobby." And you know, I'll admit we have a piano in our lobby too at St. Francis. But I said, "Patients don't come in that way. They come in by ambulance. They never, <laughs> they never see the piano. That's not why. It's the, it's the care each and every person from the parking lot attendant to the nurses to nursing assistants to the pharmacist." The doctors, the anesthesiologists, the radiologists, everybody working in concert as a team to deliver you the best care and best quality you can.
1: Ironically, I just had this conversation with my wife. Her dad was in a hospital in Long Island, uh, also named St. Francis. And uh, maybe it's St. Francis looking over these hospitals. But she said compared to the hospital he was usually at, the experience was so much better. And the nurses explained that when you get interviewed here, they're not worried about what you know. They just keep asking you uh, questions that probe your approach to a patient and, and how you care for a patient. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back for a last segment with Dr. John Rodas. We're going to talk a little bit about how do you get all this patient safety at the right cost. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Mm-hmm. We're back on Healthy Rounds for our final segment with Dr. John Rodas, who is the president of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. And, John, so we're talking about quality and press gain. Actually, I misunderstood you when you said I was healthy because I thought you were talking about me getting – I must have a press gainy rating somewhere in in cyberspace. But, uh, yeah, I guess I never filled one out. I haven't been a patient. That's – I guess that's pretty good, but let's talk about it—the value of healthcare. So, how do you get to safety? Get to a level of safety and still control costs? Because that's what we all want to talk about.
2: Yeah, I think that's the ultimate challenge. You know, I used to have a boss who said you can't have it all—you can't have quality, safety, good patient experience, and a low cost—and and I remember thinking, I'm not sure that's true. And I think we've been able to demonstrate in, in Trinity Health of New England and St. Francis that. It is possible. We've, we've done it. You can have really high safety scores. You can have great quality scores by any measure. And there's plenty of rating. You know, the CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, rates hospitals, on the star rating system. You know, we have four stars. at St. Francis. Health grades, you know, rate, rates hospitals are a top 250 in America. Um, IBM Watson has rated us as a top 100 hospital in America. And I think to answer your question, that's probably the most – the most relevant one, they looked at everything. They look at quality scores, safety scores, survival rates, complications, length of stay, waiting time in the emergency room, and they included patient experience and cost of care, and cost of care, which most uh, any other rating doesn't include that. And, you know, we got rated to a top 100 hospital in America and really top 15 uh, hospital for teaching hospitals. So I think that kind of shows you that you can do it. You've seen some of the efforts now the state of Connecticut is doing to try to lower their costs and try to you know really push patients I guess or nudge patients into looking at quality and safety and costs so they can make an informed decision. Um, you could do it, but you have to you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to details.
1: At St. Francis, I mean, uh, 14 years ago, one of our sponsors was CJRI Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute at St. Francis, and to my mind, those were the f- that was the first group that really talked about top-to-bottom cost. In other words, what does it cost to replace this joint? Um, what hardware are we going to use? Are we all going to use the same hardware? And you had to agree on it, which getting surgeons to agree on anything is fairly <laughs> miraculous as it is and probably took intervention from St. Francis himself or maybe Pope Francis. But you were able to do it uh, to to a large degree. Is that model applicable across the board?
2: Yeah, I actually think so. I think St. Francis, you know, in, in healthcare, I mean there's there's, you know, primary care and prevention, but in when you're gonna have surgery, uh, you know, I look at it as kind of in, in in business school we'd call a focused factory, right? Right. You know what you gotta do. It should be standard work. Everybody should go through a very same summer experience and, and C uh, really did set the bar for, and it wasn't just cost, Tony. It was everything we talked about. They really said we're going to be efficient, we're going to have high quality, it's going to be safe, there's going to be great patient experience, and we're going to work with the hospital to keep costs down. It, it's and it's a really testimony to the leadership of those original founders. And um, what they've, they've been able to achieve at all. And it's not just necessarily making doctors actually use a single uh, imp type of implant, but it's working collaboratively. So you tell the implant companies, hey, if you want us to use your product, you've got to lower the cost. And uh, so we still have a lot of different implants we use and robotics, surgery and all that. Yeah. But, but we're able to drive the cost down because our volume is so high. You know, we have now have 34,000 patients in our registry. The other thing they've done, which is remarkable, they created a registry where we have patient-reported outcomes in virtually every patient who comes in with follow-up up up to a year after they come. And that is really helpful to continue to drive quality and and patient care and safety.
1: And the infection rate is low. Incredibly low. Which is something we always worry about with joint replacement. John, as a final question, what's the future? I mean, if you had to take out your crystal ball – um, where are we moving now in terms of patient safety, hospital administration, running hospitals? Uh, what's the future going to look like?
2: Yeah, I think there's a good question, Tony. I think you have a couple things. I think health care is changing, no doubt about it. I think there's there's got to be more emphasis uh, in the primary care prevention of disease and keep people out of hospitals, to be honest with you. I think that's going to be important from a public health and cost point of view. But I think for people who need surgery or need a hospitalization, they're still going to be people that have to come in to have a baby or going to need a hip and knee replacement. Um, I I think you want to go to a place that's going to have uh, the best outcomes at a reasonable cost. Employers are tired of paying crazy prices where there's no guarantee of what the outcomes are going to be for their employees who they care about. Um, So I think what's going to happen is just like it's happened in every other industry, there'll be greater transparency in the data. Uh, You know, my kids wouldn't book a restaurant reservation. I'm sure your kids wouldn't either uh, without looking at Yelp and see how many reviews they have and all that. Right. (laughs) I don't think that generation is going to go to a hospital without really looking looking at the data. And what will probably happen over the next decade is there'll be a lot more transparency of all the things we've talked about, quality, safety, patient experience, data in a in a single a couple of clicks, uh, of your, of your phone and not now where you'd have to look at multiple sites, Leapfrog, CMS, health grades to try to really figure it all out.
1: John, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming here today and spending time with us. And more importantly, uh, thanks for your leadership at St. Francis, because it's clear and I hear it from the patients. Okay. So I'm at kind of the ground level and, um, patients always speak highly of the hospital itself. Uh, And as I was telling you at the beginning, so I usually get to see when things go bad as a neurologist, and that hasn't been the case. So thank you very much, and thank you uh, for supporting our program as well.
2: Well, thank you, Tony. I'm blessed with great doctors, great nurses, and that makes all the difference.
1: Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Ockel has been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. As I said earlier in the show, I'll be in Haiti this week, but I'll be back here live with you next week. Uh, I'm going to be chatting with Father Rick Freshette. I want to get an update on what's going on in Haiti. Um, also, uh, we've got several great shows coming up. We're going to be talking about the cyber CyberKnife uh, in the next few weeks. Um, so, Stay tuned. If you missed any part of today's show, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. Just go to iTunes and you can download that free. Next up on WTA is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.
0: This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.